Chapter One of Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Singleton Mosby. Chapter One Early Life. I was born December 6, 1833, at the home of my grandfather, James McLaurin, in Powhatan County, Virginia. He was the son of Robert McLaurin, an Episcopal minister, who came from Scotland before the Revolution. Great-grandfather McLaurin lived at the Glebe and is buried at Peterville Church in Powhatan. After the church was disestablished, the state appropriated the Glebe, and Peterville was sold to the Baptists. My grandfather McLaurin lived to be very old. He was a soldier of the Revolution, and I well remember his cough, which it was said he contracted from exposure in the war when he had smallpox. My grandfather Mosby was also a native of Powhatan. He lived at Gibraltar, but moved to Nelson County, where my father, Alfred D. Mosby, was born. When I was a child my father bought a farm near Charlottesville, in Albemarle, on which I was raised. I recollect that one day I went with my father to our peach orchard on a high ridge, and he pointed out Monticello, the home of Thomas Jefferson, on a mountain a few miles away, and told me some of the history of the great man who wrote the Declaration of Independence. At that time there were no public and few private schools in Virginia, but a widow opened a school in Fry's Woods, adjoining my father's farm. My sister Victoria and I went as her pupils. I was seven years old when I learned to read, although I had gone a month or so to a country school in Nelson, near a post-office called Merle's Shop, where I had learned to spell. As I was so young my mother always sent a negro boy with me to the schoolhouse, and he came for me in the evening. But once I begged him to stay all day with me, and I shared my dinner with him. When playtime came, some of the larger boys put him up on a block for sale, and he was knocked down to the highest bidder. I thought it was a bona fide sale, and was greatly distressed at losing such a dutiful playmate. We went home together, but he never spent another day with me at the schoolhouse. The first drunken man I ever saw was my schoolmaster. He went home at playtime to get his dinner, but took an overdose of whiskey. On the way back he fell on the roadside and went to sleep. The big boys picked him up and carried him into the schoolhouse, and he heard our lessons. The school closed soon after, I don't know why. It was a common thing in the old days of Negro slavery for a Virginia gentleman, who had inherited a fortune, to live in luxury with plenty of the comforts of life, and die insolvent, while his overseer retired to live on what he had saved. Mr. Jefferson was one example of this. I often heard that Jefferson had held in his arms Betsy Wheat, a pupil at the school where I learned to read. She was the daughter of the overseer, and, being the senior of all the other scholars, was the second in command. She exercised as much authority as the schoolmistress. As I have said, the log schoolhouse was in Fry's Woods, which adjoined my father's farm. To this rude hut I walked daily for three sessions, with my eldest sister, later with two, often through a deep snow, to get the rudiments of an education. I remember that the schoolmistress, a most excellent woman, whipped her son and me for fighting. 
That was the only blow I ever received during the time I went to school. A few years ago, I visited the spot in company with Bartlett Bowling, who was with me in the war. There was nothing left but a pile of rocks, the remains of the chimney. The associations of the place raised up phantoms of the past. I am the only survivor of the children who went to school there. I went to the spring along the same path where I had often walked when a barefooted schoolboy, and got a drink of cool water from a gourd. There I first realized the pathos of the once popular heir, Ben Bolt. The spring was still there in the running brook, but all of my schoolmates had gone. The Peter Parley were the standard schoolbooks of my day. In my books were two pictures that made a lasting impression on me. One was of Wolfe dying on the field in the arms of a soldier. The other was of Putnam riding down the stone steps with the British close behind him. About that time I borrowed a copy of The Life of Marion, which was the first book I read, except as a task at school. I remember how I shouted, when I read aloud in the nursery, of the way the great partisan hid in the swamp and outwitted the British. I did not then expect that the time would ever come when I would have escapes as narrow as that of Putnam, and take part in adventures that have been compared with Marion's. When I was ten years old I began going to school in Charlottesville. Sometimes I went on horseback, and sometimes I walked. Two of my teachers, James White, who taught Latin and Greek, and Alec Nelson, who taught mathematics, were afterwards professors at Washington and Lee while General Robert E. Lee was its president. When I was sixteen years old I went as a student to the University of Virginia, some evidence of the progress I had made in getting an education. In my youth I was very delicate, and often heard that I would never live to be a grown man. But the prophets were wrong, for I have outlived nearly all the contemporaries of my youth. I was devoted to hunting, and a servant always had coffee ready for me at daylight on a Saturday morning so that I was out shooting when nearly all were sleeping. My father was a slaveholder, and I still cherished a strong affection for the slaves who nursed me and played with me in my childhood. That was the prevailing sentiment in the South, not one peculiar to myself, but one prevailing in all the South toward an institution which we now thank Abraham Lincoln for abolishing. Footnote. Colonel Mosby never had a word to say favorable to slavery a fact which may be attributed to the influence of Miss Abby Southwick, afterwards Mrs. Stevenson, of Manchester, Massachusetts, who was employed to teach his sisters. She was a strong and outspoken abolitionist, and a friend of Garrison and Wendell Phillips. All the Mosby family were, and remained, devoted to Miss Southwick. She and young Mosby had numerous talks on the subject of slavery and other political topics. At the close of the war she immediately sent money and supplies to the family, and told how anxiously she had read the papers, fearing to find the news that he had been killed. End of footnote. I had no taste for athletics, and have never seen a ball game. My habits of study were never regular, but I always had a literary taste. While I fairly recited Tacitus and Thucydides as a task, I read with delight Irving's stories of the Moors in Granada. Colonel Mosby's career at the University of Virginia, where he graduated in Greek and mathematics, was not so serene throughout as that of the ordinary student. One incident made a lasting impression upon his mind, 
and affected his future course. He was convicted of unlawfully shooting a fellow student, and was sentenced to a fine and imprisonment in the jail at Charlottesville. It was the case of defending the good name of a young lady, and while the law was doubtless violated, public sentiment was indicated by the legislature's remitting the fine and the governor's granting a pardon. The Baltimore Sun published an account of this incident by Mr. John S. Patton, who said that Mosby had been fined ten dollars for assaulting the town sergeant. The young Mosby had been known as one not given to lawless hilarity, but as a fighter. "'And the colonel himself admits,' continues Patton, "'that he got the worst of these boyish engagements, except once, when the fight was on between him and Charles Price, of Meacham's, and in that case they were separated before victory could perch.' They also go so far as to say that he was a spirited lad, though far from talkative and not far from quiet, introspective moods. His antagonist this time was George Turpin, a student of medicine in the university. Turpin had carved Frank Morrison to his taste with a pocket-knife, and added to his reputation by nearly killing Fred M. Wills with a rock. When Jack Mosby, spare and delicate, Turpin was large and athletic, received the latter's threat that he would eat him blood-raw on sight, he proceeded to get ready. The cause of the impending hostilities was an incident at a party of the Spooner residence in Montebello, which Turpin construed as humiliating to him, and with the aid of some friends who dearly loved a fisticuff, he reached the conclusion that John Mosby was to blame, and that it was his duty to chastise him. Bosby was due at mathematics lecture-room, and thither he went, and met Professor Courtenay, and did his problems first of all. That over, he thrust a pepper-box pistol into his jacket, and went forth to find his enemy. He had not far to go, for by this time the Turpins were keeping a boarding-house in the building then, as now, known as the Cable House, about the distance of four Baltimore blocks from the university. Thither went the future partisan leader, and with a friend was standing on the back porch when Turpin approached. He advanced on Mosby at once, but not far. The latter brought his pepper-box into action with instant effect. Turpin went down with a bullet in his throat, and was taken up as good as dead. The trial is still referred to as the cause célèbre of our local court. Four great lawyers were engaged in it, the names of Robertson, Rives, Watson, and Leach, adorn the legal annals of Virginia. The prosecutor in this case was Judge William J. Robertson, of Charlottesville, who made a vigorous arraignment of the young student. On visiting the jail one day after the conviction, much to his surprise Robertson was greeted by Mosby in a friendly manner. This was followed by the loan of a copy of Blackstone's Commentaries to the prisoner, and a lifelong friendship between the two. Thus it was that young Mosby entered upon the study of law, which he made his profession. Colonel Mosby wrote on a newspaper clipping, giving an account of the shooting incident. I did not go to Turpin's house, but he came to my boarding-house, and he had sent me a message that he was coming there to eat me up. Mosby's conviction affected him greatly, and he did not include an account of it in his story because, or at least it would seem probable, he feared that the conclusion would be drawn that he was more like the picture painted by the enemy during the war, instead of the kindly man he really was. 
However this may be, nothing pleased him more than the honors paid to him by the people of Charlottesville and by the University of Virginia. He spoke of these things as one of time's revenges. In January 1915, a delegation from Virginia presented Colonel Mosby with a bronze medal and an embossed address which read as follows. To Colonel John S. Mosby, Warrenton, Virginia. Your friends and admirers in the University of Virginia welcome this opportunity of expressing for you their affection and esteem, and of congratulating you upon the vigor and alertness of body and mind with which you have rounded out your fourscore years. Your alma mater has pride in your scholarly application in the days of your prepossessing youth, in your martial genius, manifested in a career singularly original and romantic, in the forceful fluency of your record of the history made by yourself and your comrades in the Army of Northern Virginia, and in the dignity, diligence, and sagacity with which you have served your united country at home and abroad, endowed with the gift of friendship which won for you the confidence of both Lee and Grant, you have proven yourself a man of war, a man of letters, and a man of affairs worthy the best traditions of your university and your state, to both of which you have been a loyal son. End of chapter.